When I was a kid, I wanted to be a mailman when I grew up. Now I'm a television writer. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Zoe Marshall, born to a British Guyanese immigrant father and the first black female marketing executive at Frito-Lay. Zoe grew up with a love for stories about people who are one of a kind and chips. A writer for film and television, Zoe's writing career began in 2014 when her short film Passing was featured at the Cannes International Film Festival that year. She has since moved on to writing for network and premium cable television, as well as features. Zoe currently writes for Charmed on The CW, recently sold a pilot to HBO, and is serving her first term on the board of directors for the Writers Guild of America West. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Zoe. Thanks, man. So we always like to start with what's called our current curiosities, something that has recently sparked your curiosity. For me, I came across this article in Wired. Uh, I believe the author's name was Rachel Botsman. And she talked about this concept that I had not yet heard of called reality apathy. So like with all the deep fakes now, it's becoming harder to tell what's real and what's not real. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, if you have someone who says grab him by the, you know, Mm -hmm. he can then go back and claim like, oh, that wasn't me. That was a deep fake. And then you have what's called the liar's dividend. So you have this plausible deniability that people now have as deep fakes are becoming more and more prominent and it's scary and it makes me think of inception and just like all the madness that that can ensue from that and so her her larger point is if you if people are interested they can read the articles about how can we teach children how to kind of decipher between deep fakes versus reality and i just think it's a really interesting topic that's gotten me curious as this tech has become more and more advanced mm-hmm. i never thought that we would ever live in a world in which we have to discern what's true and what's not yeah on the most basic level just disputing fact in this way is really unnerving and and having to explain that even to my nieces and nephews that some people are just liars and they'll try and gaslight you into thinking that they're not is really disturbing yeah it's uh it's crazy like there you can just lie about something now and people will just continue because we we already as humans are kind of programmed with a bias to hear what we want to hear and see what we want to see but when you actually can do that it's mm-hmm. kind of scary and there are also just a lot of systems in place that we operate within that fundamentally rely upon trust yeah and honesty and a mutual acceptance of certain things to be true and the fact that we are calling truth and fact into question even when we do have clear evidence of what the truth is and there's still this petulant denial of what's real it's frustrating and certain systems can absolutely fall apart totally and if anybody's a malcolm gladwell fan a lot of his new book is about this and how we default to truth and it's important because i'm here with you now and if i was like hi my name's ben and you were like no it's not like prove it we'd never get anywhere right yeah um but at the same time he has a chapter about the whistleblower for the Madoff scheme. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that guy was on top of it the whole time, but nobody was listening to him because they were like, this guy's Madoff has been getting along for decades, like whatever. Um, But then Malcolm Gladwell exposes like, 
yes, that guy was right, but he lives in such a paranoid way in his lifestyle. And every time he gets in a car, he makes sure there's no like bomb on the bottom of it. It's just like, mm. it's this weird balance of like, yes, we kind of have to default to truth, but also that's becoming so much harder. So anyway, all just food for thought and things that have gotten me curious. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What about you? Mine is far less philosophical. Um, I've recently gotten into vinyl records. Oh, cool. And I've bought a couple of obviously reprinted records from places like Target or Amoeba, the record store. But I also went through both of my parents' record collections. And my parents have been divorced forever, but it was really cool to look at the the shared albums that they both bought in their 20s. And they could not be more different people. And going through their different records and seeing how my dad's was precisely labeled and organized based on genre artist album title and my mom's she would put like masking tape and kind of scribble her name on the front of the record and some of them were scratched but just seeing how they both loved the same types of music and then listening to them even the records that were kind of scratched and hearing the history of this music it felt like I was inheriting a legacy from them in a way because I love I cook all the time I'm working all the time and I do both of those things to music and so I've been listening to my parents records and these records that I've bought for myself while doing those things and it it feels like the work that I'm doing is kind of perpetuating this family legacy which has been really cool it's so cool so you you just picked and choose whichever records you liked from their collections yes kind of um I really wanted my mom's Whitney Houston albums and she was like absolutely not i will tackle you <laughs> if you leave here with my whitney albums um i did get a, a marvin gay album from her which okay was, which was great that's awesome yeah that is so cool do you think it sounds any cooler or better yeah so i actually um my mom has this um aretha franklin album and i also bought ironically i just bought that same album brand new and i listened to both of them and there's a richness to the sound of, you know, my mom's album, which was an original pressing, which she's had for forever. Um, and obviously she's listened to it repeatedly. So the sound is worn down in a different kind of way. But it's almost kind of like if you buy a leather couch and it kind of the the leather kind of matures with the time that you have it and you kind of wear into it and the oils change the color of the leather and stuff like that. Records are kind of they evolve in the same way and you can hear a richness to Aretha's voice in a well-loved record although you have a different kind of clarity of a new record so it was just really cool to hear music the way that it was originally presented and then hearing a remastered version of the same thing that's awesome and that's kind of the best metaphor i've heard the leather couch metaphor for vinyl you can really tell that zoe's a writer that was just so beautifully beautifully said <laughs> So I want to talk a little about your writing process because I'm so curious. Like you, you said you, when you were a kid, you wanted to be a mailman and now, <laughs> now you're an amazing drama writer. So tell us about what it's like to write drama for TV. So I write TV and film and I, I spend the most time in the TV space, particularly because it's this, it's a team sport. Like as a kid, I always wanted to play on a sports team and I never really did successfully, not because I didn't play well with others, but because I lacked the physical capacity to actually play well. <laughs> I'm just really not athletically inclined. Um, but I loved that community and that teamwork. And I was always kind of looking for that type of environment 
and I ended up doing theater and choir and orchestra. And in television, it's really, it's that. It's a team that is rowing in the same direction. And these writers that are on staff every day sharing parts of their lives and trying to figure out this massive puzzle that is a story to help a showrunner execute their vision. It's, it's like trying to win a soccer game. Um, and it's, it's collaborative and fun and it can be really frustrating because sometimes story can be forthcoming and friendly and accommodating. And other times story is kind of an asshole, just really elusive. And the story comes when it comes. And sometimes you think it works and you're excited and you're tired and it's 9 PM in the room and you're all ready to go home. And then someone realizes, Oh crap, I don't want to be the turd in the punch bowl, but guys, this act three break doesn't work. And then everything falls apart. So it's, you're all in the trenches together. And I, I really love that about being a, a TV writer. How did you know even before? Cause I think, um, it's a, it's a cool discovery once you're in a room seeing how it's like a team but when you're in college for example you're there are courses that are kind of structured like a writer's room but in general you're writing your script and it's not it's not quite the same so how did you know like um structurally like you you like tv and there's something that it's a kind of writing you wanted to do because writing you could have gone into novel writing you could have gone into other things um but how did you know like this is the form that i really like well honestly at first I learned like that's where the jobs are and that's where the money is and I had a professor who was straight up like if you want to make a living writing you should try writing for television and I was really stressed out because I was so in love with film and I still really love film I didn't trust my ability to come up with a story that had legs to develop an engine that could go on for a hundred episodes I was really good at finding interesting moments in life and telling that story for 90 minutes or two hours And fortunately, I was in film school at the time when television was really changing. Um, Mad Men had just been put on to Netflix. House of Cards season one had just come out and it was a huge deal. Orange is the New Black. Like it just television had evolved and it had almost um, a cinematic type quality to it, which I found really attractive and I was like okay well if I want to eat it's not so bad that like there's some television out here that feels really compelling to me granted this was through the lens of like kind of like a a 21 year old film snob who was still in school so like it I was in that place where I was judging television but television is fantastic and it's a brilliant type of um specific more intimate storytelling because you're revisiting people's lives over and over again um so I I grew to really love television for those reasons I'm I very much identify as a character writer and I like that you go on this journey with these characters and you can dig into their flaws and their relationships and get to know them like people in your own life which is um a type of psychological storytelling that I really enjoy And I truly believe that if you have characters who you really care about, you could see them grocery shopping and be interested. Totally. So how did you decide? Because I feel like writing and TV can sometimes feel a little siloed between comedy and drama. How did you decide that the hour-long format of drama is something that you might be more passionate about and want to explore? So This actually, for me, it goes back to Aristotle's poetics. Oh, boy. Idea. Okay. I know. I know. <laughs> this idea of like 
tragedy and comedy and some people try to um, prioritize one over the other or um, suggest that one can exist without the other. Personally, I don't think that they can. I think um, so comedy is just like the tragedy of man, right? But your ability to laugh at his downfall. All comedy is rooted in some kind of like struggle. Yeah. Um, And tragedy i think everything in life has some level of comedic elements or irony that you can acknowledge um i'm drawn to drama that is punctuated by comedy for that reason because i think that the two just go hand in hand i can appreciate a half hour a really funny piece of television but i prefer half hours that have some serialized element to them um and i think the most effective drama is you can have a brilliant artistic well-structured show i think shows that take themselves too seriously all the time also lose my interest perhaps because i do write for television if i see a show that takes itself way too seriously i'm thinking about the process and who must have been in that room and it almost feels like masturbatory in a way where it's like we're just going to talk about how brilliant we are and put it on the page and maybe that's an unfair judgment um of mine but um yeah i think i just i love drama that it gives you more space to get a bigger, I think a, a fuller picture of a story that you can um, follow emotionally where your characters are going, but also laugh about it if it's funny. Yeah, something that I was really struck by in preparation for this, I was watching one of your episodes on Charmed season two, episode eight, The Rules of Engagement, I believe it's titled, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just punctuated by all these funny lines, even though they're in a really dramatic situation. <laughs> it's like, you're not Tim Cook unveiling the iPhone. And I'm like, this is, there's, and they're in the middle of a war between demons and witches. And she's like cracking these, <laughs> these subtle digs. And so I think uh, it was, it was really cool to watch. And I'm wondering like, how do you, for people who aren't familiar with the structure, like you said, is it, is it um, uncharmed? Is it like a six act structure? Yeah, we have a six-act structure. So can you kind of break down for people who aren't as familiar with the structure of an hour-long? What does it typically look like? Um, So an hour-long, the structure is going to vary, first of all, based on the the network that you're on. Yeah. So the CW has six-act structure dramas. And um, it's really kind of the showrunner's call if they prefer a short teaser that's almost like a flash in the pan versus a teaser that's almost like a an abridged act one. So season one of Charmed, we would have um, a really quick teaser that would just end with a shoe drop that had usually a funny moment, but then it kind of thrusts us into whatever the drama is for the episode, or we'll see what the demon is. Season two, it's more of a miniature act in and of itself, where we kind of set the stage for where our characters are at. And ultimately, when we figure out the peril of the episode, then we'll go to the title card. Um, But yeah, it varies show to show. But particularly for um, one-hour genre shows, you do tend to have more act breaks, um, at, at least in my experience. Yeah, and that, like you said, differs depending on where the show is. If you're on a streamer, you don't need to really worry about act breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, traditional TV, like the CW, you're, you're, I guess, indirectly or directly planning for these commercials. Yes. Yes, you're building up these climaxes so yeah. that network can sell Kleenex, which then can fund <laughs> yes. your endeavor because there would be no charm if they could do that. And 
you also know that all act breaks are not created equally. So, you know, the certain point in the episode, especially if it's a shorter act, your act break doesn't have to land as intensely as, you know, earlier in the episode. Um, Particularly like, so your act five break for the CW, or at least for us is usually the resolution of the major A story. And then act six is really short. It's almost like a tag. So, you know, your act five break is going to be different from your act three break. Your act three break is usually a complication for your characters. So they think that they have figured out how to solve this issue. And then it's it's kind of your oh fuck moment where it's like, oh, we've been chasing the red herring or, oh, we thought it was just A, but we also need B in order to do this. Act one, your act one break is telling you basically what each of your characters is going to have to do this episode. Act two is... Your act two break is kind of raising the stakes. So just each of you're servicing different story needs with each type of act break. And you also don't want to have the same type of beat for every act break because it feels kind of redundant. And again, if the goal is on network television to bring your viewers coming back um, or even if they're watching it on the CW app later, you don't want them to close the app. You want it to feel like an interesting progression in the story and if all of your act breaks are the same, it's they can predict what's going to happen. Got it. So when you're in the room, how are you guys going about breaking, you know, this hour long episode? We can um, even focus specifically on if you remember uh, writing 208, if you remember the process about breaking that one. Yeah. So it it depends on a few different things. So you're, there's a basic breaking process that we use for every episode, but... It depends on where you are in the season. So episode 208 was our mid-season finale. So we had to break that um, differently because we knew that we were going to be off of the air for six weeks. So, And because it is the clear divide between the act one and act two of the season, if you will. So we knew that there were certain reveals that we needed to get to. We knew that there were certain um, doors we needed to close, things that we needed to tee up. Um without spoiling anything because we haven't come back from the break yet there are certain characters that are generally introduced in the second half of a season and we had to make sure that we did the work in the mid-season finale to effectively set up those stories so that it doesn't feel like these characters are coming out of left field um episode seven which came right before obviously seven comes before eight (laughs) Um, that we tried to break it almost as like a part one and a part two. So instead of breaking six acts, we tried to break 12 acts and kind of figure out, you know, how can we have an interesting cliffhanger, especially because we knew we had a week off the air between episodes seven and eight. So the way that you're going to break an episode has to do with, you're going to know in advance what your airing schedule is. Um, If you have, you do not have every actor for every episode. That's, those are different contracts and and um, budgetary considerations that are decided earlier on. So if we know that we only have, that we have to sit out an actor for four episodes, for example, maybe, you know, we'll have a big event for them in this episode and then we won't see them for a couple of episodes. And a good time to do that would be a mid-season finale. So we broke eight um kind of with a to-do list of things that we needed to accomplish 
Um, and every episode has a to-do list in some way. If we, when we're breaking out the whole season structure at the beginning of the writer's room, like for the season, let's say this is not an actual storyline. You can go back to season one if you want. That's, if okay. you want, because yeah. yeah, so like that's for, out there. We're not spoiling anything. So for season one, we knew that Macy was going to take on the source. And so we kind of had a list of like, okay, we need to hit certain benchmarks by certain points in the season. So it's like the audience needs to understand what the source is. I don't remember the actual episodes that we did it, but let's say by episode four, you know, the harbinger of hell appears. And that is when we learn what the source is. By episode seven, we find out that someone is also looking for the source. By episode nine, that person almost got close. So if we know we have to hit certain points for the larger mythology to work, that's kind of tacked onto different episodes, which obviously sometimes changes. Um, but we do have a general roadmap of, oh, we need these. If we're going to break up these characters by episode 18, we need them to be desperately in love by 15 so that, you know, so we need to have them start dating by 12 and they need to have their first kiss by 10 and, and stuff like that. So you kind of figure out your end of season goal and you reverse engineer what you need to effectively get there um, and, you know, sprinkle in some complications along the way. So I think every episode generally is, okay, what is the task for this episode that we have to accomplish? Um, what's interesting for this episode? We also, the entire writing staff, we're looking at dailies. Um, what are dailies for people who aren't familiar? Yes. I was, <laughs> I was just thinking people may not know what that is. Um, dailies, it's basically just the daily footage from a shooting day. Um, Unedited, and, just completely the raw footage. Yes. Yeah. And so... We as a staff will watch dailies because it's if we have a new actor we're working with, for example, we want to see, oh, did the chemistry play between these two characters? Um, does this person have comedic timing? Does it feel like there were actual stakes to this type of storyline? Are these things working? Because if we see something in the dailies that isn't working, we course correct as quickly as we can. And sometimes, unfortunately, you have to give things a little more time to play out. So you can't course correct as immediately as you would like to, but that also affects the story. So we've had a situation where two actors just did not have chemistry and it, it had nothing to do with their individual acting ability. The chemistry just wasn't there. And sometimes you can't tell that from a chemistry read. Sometimes you can really only find that out when they're playing out a scene together. And then we had to change an entire story arc. And, um, you know, that, I think that happens in every show and that's part of the fun and the challenge of our job is problem solving in that way. So sometimes you'll be breaking a story one way where it's like, we're going to have these characters get into a love triangle and then you watch the dailies. So, and by the way, we're working on four different episodes at any given time. So you have one episode that's being broken, uh, just, explaining that term breaking story is just um coming up with the content of the story it's not as violent as it sounds yes <laughs> so we're breaking story on one episode a writer is writing one episode an episode is being prepped an episode is being shot and then an oh so i guess five episodes and then an episode is being edited so we're working on five episodes simultaneously all the time so if we're watching dailies for the episode that's let's say we're watching dailies for episode five episode or uh i would say episode 10 sure um that means we would be breaking oh god nine eight we would be breaking episode 14 while we're watching those dailies 
Okay. And if something isn't playing right, we're like, oh shit, we're currently prepping episode 11 and it's progressing this love story with them that clearly is not going to work. How can we adjust episode 11, which is in prep right now, and all of these department heads are putting together everything that they need to actually shoot this. How can we adjust it without unraveling the whole show? And then we need to go into episode 12, which is currently... Am I doing this correctly? I'm, I'm trying to think if I'm, the numbers are going in the right direction. The, yeah, con- okay. the concept makes sense, though, yes. <laughs> is that you have a little lead time in the writer's mm-hmm. room, and you're keeping an eye on the dailies yeah. to make sure everything's tracking. Yeah. And you mentioned department heads. Just real quick, that means like the person in charge of wardrobe and makeup and all these things, because mm-hmm. they are taking their cues from the script. Mm-hmm. So when you change something in the script, you have to notify everyone, and they want to know as soon as possible so they have enough lead time to make changes. And also... I work on a visual effects heavy show. I work on a genre show. And so there are also certain changes. If we have, let's say we're watching the dailies and we're like, the stakes aren't really playing for this. Let's give this character a new power or an enhanced power or something. Then our visual effects house has to build a visual effect for that to be effectively done. So it's just, we're, we're on this very, very precisely timed schedule for everything and every decision that we make in the storytelling has a consequence for the hundreds of people who help put the show together um and sometimes i think people watching tv will be like why did they do that or that was so jarring or that happened so quickly or what happened to that storyline and sometimes you know we get into post and we're like, wow, that wasn't really producible, that it was too expensive to get the visual effect that we needed to effectively tell that story or these people didn't work well together or sometimes we'll lose a location. And so, or we'll lose an actor who we only had pinned for a couple episodes and they booked a pilot. And then all of a sudden that character's just not there anymore. (laughs) So um, yeah, there's just a lot of moving parts all the time. Yeah, I think it's uh, behind the scenes. There's a lot of stuff you have to keep track of that can affect the story and you do your best to make sure narratively it still tracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's say, as as I understand it, the showrunner, you know, is responsible for assigning the episodes and they try to do it in a fairly equitable way. Mm -hmm. So people are getting, everybody hopefully has an at-bat. And then, well, let's say you are assigned an episode. First, Mm -hmm. you have to go off and outline it, right? Yes. So what does that look like for you? What, what do you do? As soon as you're told you are off to outline, what happens for Zoe Marshall? Um, this also varies <laughs> show to show. Just in that the process is really dictated by how the showrunner likes to make their show. Um, some showrunners prefer a group writing process. Some showrunners will just individually give you, you know, the story and go do it yourself. The fortunate thing about being on seasons one and two of Charmed and having different showrunners both times, the the processes are very different. So season one, sometimes if we were in a time crunch, we would group write um, our outlines. Other times if we've, if we're made of time, we will break the story as a room to the extent where the writer understands what points we need to hit at different parts of the story. Um, And then they go off an outline and you get a certain amount of time to do it. In an ideal world, you would get five full writing days, which is five business days. Um, you don't always get that much time. Sometimes yeah. you get two days. <laughs> um, and, and in a perfect world, what are you prepped with before you go off to outline? Um, you have kind of like a beat sheet. So basically we figure out the moves 
of an episode on cards, which are, I mean, literal cards. It's old like, school. No yeah, cards. physical no cards. <laughs> um, we also use magnetic cards. So we have big whiteboards that, um, and then little like magnetic whiteboard yes, cards. We, we use this in, in the writer's room I'm in now too. And I, this is especially helpful because you might write a card and you, if you just write on a whiteboard and you need to move a beat, you have to then erase it yes. and then rewrite it. And yes. it's a pretty time consuming process because inevitably you're going to be moving a lot of beats. Yes. Whereas if you get basically a whiteboard roll and then you cut up, cut mm-hmm. it up into tinier pieces that you can then write a beat on when you need to move it. And instead of erasing and rewriting, yep. you can just pick that up and slab it on elsewhere and, it's, and it saves so much time. <laughs> it's way better. Also, when I was uh, one show that I was a writer's assistant on, we used actual index cards oh my God. <laughs> with Sharpies. <laughs> And it was fucking terrible. Yeah. And so if a writer was like, oh, actually, we want to change this slug line from the university to the airport, then Did it's like, okay, you can, Would you, like- you can like cross <laughs> it out sometimes. But if you make too many changes, it's useless. Then you yeah. have to start over yeah. and you just have to keep rewriting these stupid index cards. So basically, we will beat out the story points on these cards and they are color coordinated so that we can identify if each story and character who's helming that story is being adequately serviced. So if we see that if the A story is in red and we see a ton of red cards in acts one and two, and there's one red card in act three, we're like, this isn't balanced. How can we move this? Or if we see that every single act out is the B story, we're like, how can we change this up? So um, we figure out the beats and make sure that it's evenly blended the story is paced correctly um the time is especially because it is a show with three leads we have to service three different characters we kind of have four leads this season um with harry kind of stepping up a little more and it is very difficult to figure out how and it's not even a matter of screen time it's about story real estate and figuring out how can we service these emotional stories and the plot and the mythology evenly once we figure that out, um, our very capable writer's assistant will transcribe everything on the board. And so these beats are like a sentence or two. And then below that beat, he will elaborate on the more in-depth discussion that we've had about what that scene is or what that beat is. So that when you go off to outline, so when I go off to outline, if I don't remember verbatim what we talked about in the room, I can look at this beat sheet and be like, oh, this... This breakfast scene for them is when they're downloading about the demon is not the demon they thought it was. Oh, my God. And <laughs> um, and then it's my job. The biggest role when you're on script, like when it's your episode, you ne- do whatever you need to do to make sure that you're understanding what the room landed on and what the showrunner signed off on for the story. One of the worst things you can do if you are sent off to outline or you're sent off to script and you turn in something that is not what we landed on, that is not what the showrunner asked for, or um, tonally doesn't fit the show, but that last one is a much larger issue. Like that's, it is your responsibility to make sure that before you are sent off to write, that you understand the task at hand. You need to be able to explain every single beat on that board. Usually there's a process of you have to pitch out the whole episode to the room and to the showrunner before you're sent off to script. Sometimes the showrunner or the number two will check in and be like, does that make sense? Is that landing? And um, again, because you're hired for your ideas, but for your writing services at the end of the day. And if you turn in an outline that has to be 
that ends up being a page one rewrite, that screws the show. And the showrunner does not have time. There has to be an element of trust between the showrunner and their staff that they have people who understand the task at hand and who can carry it out. Um, so for me, when we're on my episode, I take separate notes from the writer's assistant. And it's not because he's not capable, but because there are small things that'll pop up in my head where I'll be like, oh, that would be good dialogue for this. Or a small thing that for him won't seem significant. But for me as a writer who has to write this scene, I'm like, oh, I need to take note of that. Um, but everyone has a different process. I know a writer who like jots down stuff on sticky notes. Um, I know some people who just kind of have a photographic memory and that's wonderful for them. I am not that person. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, and yeah, you kind of go from there, but you really have to make sure you understand what your job is before you're sent off to do it because the, the room just keeps going. Like once you're sent off to script on episode nine, we're already breaking episode 10. And by the time you come back from being on script, episode 10 is probably on outline. So it's just, and then while you're on script, if something isn't working and some writers will say, I can't write this, which that's a bullshit excuse. If you're an expiring writer, like don't ever say that you never should say to your showrunner, I can't write that. Like it's your job to write it. So it's okay to ask clarifying questions. Hey, I need a little more information to write this effectively. But if your showrunner has decided this is a story that works and makes sense for them and it's a story that can play, it's your job to write the story. And it is not acceptable to just be like, well, nope, I can't do that. It's like, "Mm, that's your job so yeah totally i can't believe anyone has the audacity people say that all the time it baffles me i don't get it (laughs) this is your one job um to write (laughs) yeah but if you are in script and you find something and sometimes there are certain things when you're some we'll say in the room find it on the page because we have to move on there are certain things that when you're actually in the nuance of writing this outline or writing the script that you will realize don't work and that's okay you need to identify why it doesn't work at that point, you call your boss. You call the number two, you call the showrunner or whoever it is that you've been told to contact about it and you talk it out with them. And if it doesn't work, sometimes we'll take it back to the room and we'll be like, this act three break actually doesn't work the way that it's written. Sometimes you'll just move stuff around. What you should not be doing is restructuring your episode without checking in with someone because again, that's not your job. Your job is to write the material that we all decided on and that your boss signed off on. Um, and I think sometimes people can get themselves into trouble deciding like, I can just fix this episode. It's like, no, check in. Cause I've had experiences where I'm like, Hey, this doesn't work. I'll pitch a fix. My boss will be like, Oh, cool. Run with that. And then you change it. Um, and then there'll be other times where I'm like, Hey, I kind of bumped on this and my boss will explain to me, Oh no, it actually just needs to be done this way. And then I go back to what I'm doing and I finish my assignment. And also sometimes they're ahead of you in the room. So Mm -hmm. something that might not make sense for you in that episode might be illuminated in a future episode that they're currently working on that you weren't even aware of. Yep. Yeah. And that kind of speaks to the organization of a room too, where Mm -hmm. can you explain just briefly for people who aren't familiar with the structure of a writer's room from showrunner on down to staff writer, what that looks like? Um, Okay. So... The showrunner is a lot of the times, but not always, the creator of the show. Um, The title that you'll see on like a deadline article, sometimes they'll say showrunner, but usually they say executive producer. Um, So they are a writing executive producer. Um, You can have some other executive producers who are writers on staff who are not the showrunner. You have co-executive producers. Whenever someone says number two, it is usually a co-executive producer or an executive producer on staff who kind of 
I mean, they're like the co-pilot. So sometimes they are the person who runs the room when the showrunner isn't there. If you have a showrunner who loves to be on set, your number two will run the room a lot. If you have a showrunner who loves to be in post most of the time, the number two might be running the room. Sometimes the number two is the person who takes the pass over scripts. So it's just their role is kind of determined by what the showrunner can or cannot do. Um, so, and then before co-executive producer, you have supervising producer. You also have consulting producers. Consulting producers aren't necessarily in the room every day. That can vary from show to show. Um, sometimes if you have, I don't know, like a legal drama and you have a show who used, or you have a writer who used to be a judge, but who does like write full time. They may be a consulting producer who kind of taps in as the show needs them, but they may not come into the room every day. They may come in like twice a week. Um, before that you have producers before that are co-producers. Um, and co-producer is kind of the beginning of a mid-level writer. When you get to mid-level, there's a level of management or there's an element of management that's expected of your job. So you're not just there to break story. You're also there to help kind of guide other writers. You're given different kinds of responsibilities. And then you have your lower level writers. So executive story editor, story editor, and staff writer. Staff writers are there to kind of, um, help keep the train moving. So if the room is just down and out of ideas, that's a great time for a staff writer to pitch something that's kind of a springboard that'll kind of get the train rolling again. You're there very much in a support capacity. I was very lucky as a staff writer. I got to do a ton of writing. Um, you don't always get to do that. But at the end of the day, like the big thing about being a staff writer is the energy that you bring to the room. Sometimes you'll do research um, but yeah, it's a lot about your room presence. No one is expecting you to turn in a perfect script as a staff writer. Like it's kind of expected that you'll probably be rewritten to some degree. And in the perfect world, once you're off on script, what does that environment look like? If you have the luxury to go home, do you choose to write from home, a coffee shop, or do you, I know writers who sometimes stay in the room and just work in their office because then they can just mm-hmm. pop in and ask the showrunner a question. Um, yeah, I mean, I know some writers who like to stay in the office. I do not understand that process. <laughs> Fair enough. But that's good for them. Yeah. Um, and it honestly has not, for me, it has nothing to do with, like, who you're working with. I don't like being in the office because I find it distracting and I'm curious what's going on in the room and it's hard for me to focus. I also think writers' rooms are kept way too cold and I like to be in a warmer environment. <laughs> um, sometimes I will travel. Sometimes I will fly home to Dallas and I'll be there for four days and I will do my work and then I'll come back. Sometimes I will just go to my apartment. I really love to go to the public library um, to get a lot of writing done. Um, And it also, where I go depends on what I'm doing. If I'm writing a 17-page outline, um, you know, I'll probably do that from home. Um, But there's something about writing a script and coming up with dialogue. I like to be around other people. I like to be around strangers and in a different kind of environment. Um... And it also depends on how many days I have to get this done. If I have the luxury of five full writing days, I'll kind of bop around the city and, you know, I'll just kind of write wherever's interesting for me. Like I'll go to the gym in the morning and I'll like have a late breakfast and then I'll go write and then I'll stop to read a book and then maybe I'll go to the Grove and then I'll write again and then, <laughs> you know, like whatever. If I am be- – and sometimes when I'm on a tighter schedule – I will marathon write for the first like 36 hours. I will take a day off because I need time and space away from the work. And then I will come back and I will revise everything. 
personally, if I have the ability to, I really, really, really like to take a second or a third pass over everything before I turn it in. Sometimes you don't have that kind of time. Sometimes you're, they're like, they'll send you off on Friday and they're like, Saturday afternoon, this has to be in. And you don't have time to take multiple passes. Obviously take like a grammar pass. But, um, but if you do have the time, I, I need mental space, even if it's just an afternoon or a couple of hours to do literally anything else. Um, do you listen to music or? Yes. Okay. I always listen to music when I write. Does it vary at all depending on what you're writing or is it just a general playlist that you like? If I am writing a difficult scene or a difficult sequence, I need to listen to something that's going to keep my blood pressure down. So like something <laughs> instrumental, something really calm so I can access this different part of my brain to kind of figure out how to solve this problem. The reason why I listen to music, if I don't have anything to listen to, I think my brain goes to different places and I start thinking about other stuff and like what I need from the grocery store. Like, oh, I have to call my mom back. And I, <laughs> so I just like need the other part of my brain to be doing something else, which is listening to the music. Yeah. And then my conscious mind can be doing my work. If I'm, some people do this, some people don't. If I'm writing like a sex scene, I'm going to listen to like R&B because I need to get into that headspace. Or if I'm, um, anytime I'm writing like the act five fight sequence, I listen to like Linkin Park because <laughs> I just need something that's like, uh, a I thought little you might say intense. Rocky theme song or yeah. something. No, Linkin Park. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Hybrid theory is a perfect album. <laughs> Very cool. All right. So you, so we've talked a little bit about what it's like being in the room. I just want to ask you before we wrap up to even get in a room, as I understand, it's good to have a sample. Mm -hmm. Right. So can you tell us? And so it's interesting when you're in a room, you're writing pretty much exclusively toward your showrunner's vision. Mm -hmm. But when you're writing a sample, that's your vision. You have a lot of freedom. Yeah. So can you talk about your process as it pertains to writing a sample? So whenever you're writing for yourself, um, having now written something that is a sales document, like having sold a pilot and having written several samples, your sample's only job is to show that you have a point of view and a voice. Or, I'm sorry, a point of view slash voice, and you have some concept of story. <laughs> for some people, story is like nail-biting plot that has interesting characters. And for other people, it's these poignant characters that can lead us anywhere. Um, for me... I care about the latter. Um, I have very poppy dialogue um, because that's just the kind of TV that I like. So all of my samples are um, really showcase that. I think the best advice that I ever got for a sample is don't write what you think you should be writing. Like write the story that you find interesting because you'll write it better. Um, I made the mistake before I got staffed. I wrote, there's a sample that I wrote cause I thought I needed to have like a half hour comedy in my repertoire. <laughs> I don't know where I got that shitty advice, but like it, it wasn't like a bad script. I think the words that my reps used were like, this isn't a bad script, but we know your standards and we know your level of work. And like, this is not close to what we're used to from you. Like, what happened? And I was like, oh, I thought that like, this is what you wanted to, what you needed to like send me out. 
And they're like, no, we need you to just write a good script. (laughs) (laughs) Write a good script the way that you write scripts. Um, And I like soapy dramedies um, that are punctuated by comedy that usually comes from dialogue. That is what I like. And that is what I write. And there's a lot of different subjects that I can cover for that. And the biggest thing when you're writing a sample, figure out the television that you like. What kind of stories, what kind of stories are fascinating to you and write it in the tone that you enjoy. And the people who see a particular skill set in that sample will hire you for that skill set. I have a sample that, you know, it required a lot of research. It was also funny. Um, But the showrunner loved the level of detail that clearly came from research and that is why they brought me in for the job like to meet with me for the job and other showrunners who were like we need something that's fast-paced and poppy and you have fast-paced poppy dialogue so again write the things that you enjoy and the people who want to hire you will find what they're looking for in it or they won't and if they find it they'll hire you and that's great and if they don't someone else will hire you it kind of goes back to what you said about a writer's room like a like a sports team I think of it like for people who are familiar with basketball at all, the Golden State Warriors that were winning championships, right? You have Steph Curry, you have Kevin Durant, you have Draymond Green, you have Klay Thompson, you have all these players. You don't want five Steph Currys, Mm -hmm. as great as Steph Curry is, right? So you're looking for somebody who can give you the skill set that Steph Curry has. You're looking for someone who can give you the skill set that Draymond has. Mm -hmm. And the showrunner has this macro picture in mind, this vision and so they'll they'll be the judge of what they're looking for mm-hmm. and hopefully your sample aligns with that. And I think with writing samples, sometimes you'll get an idea and it's you're so excited about it and you're like, I'm gonna write a pilot about this. And sometimes it's just a good idea, but it's not a story. And you have to be really honest with yourself in the process. Like you can write a cool beat sheet or even like a cool one pager, and it still seems like a great story, and then you get into outlining and it's not working. Or these characters that you thought would be fun, you're like, oh, this doesn't really make sense. And if you start breaking a pilot and it's not working, and it's not really a pilot, or maybe it's a movie, or maybe it's a webisode, or maybe it was just a fun dream that can just be a cool dream that you had one night. Like, you just have to be adaptive. I think sometimes people will waste their own time because they're trying to force a story to be something that it's not. Or sometimes you just haven't lived the correct experience to be able to tell that story well. I have tabled things that I have come back to three years later where I'm like, oh, now I have this understanding of myself and the world and I can write this story in a way that doesn't feel like a caricature. Um, So when you're writing a sample, write things that interest you because you need to be interested to go through the fresh hell that is to write a good pilot. Um, And if the story isn't what you thought it was, accept it and move on or adapt it. Here's a question, though. What if you do like the direction it's going in mm-hmm. and you could, you're could you writing for yourself? You could theoretically keep tweaking it. How do you know when to just put it to bed and go on with your life? How do you know when it's ready? I mean, you need to send it to other people. Yeah. I think for a long time, <laughs> I was obsessed with making sure it was perfect and correct. And you lose perspective after you've spent too much time with a piece of material. And I finally was like, oh, God, someone who's not me needs to read this. And sometimes it is as good as you think it is. And that's awesome. And that person will tell you that. Uh, And then sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's halfway there. Sometimes that particular project will never get there. Or like maybe there's a certain style that you tried that doesn't really make sense. Or I read a lot of people's pilots. Sometimes it's very clear this person has an eye for story and they have an interesting point of view, but they haven't read enough. They literally haven't read enough scripts. And it's clear to me that I'm like, oh, you you 
can identify an interesting story, but you don't actually know how to tell it in this way. So you need to read, you know, more episodes of Transparent because it's clear that's the type of story that you want to tell, but you don't know how to do it. So you need to take your butt to the Writers Guild Library. If you're in LA, yeah, it's a great resource. And there's also a bunch of like uh, random websites that have a bunch of pilots or random episodes of older television shows. And it's like, you just, you need to read. Um, so sometimes a pilot that you think isn't working, it's just because you don't know how to engineer it to work. And I assure you, someone else has figured out how to do it and just read how they did it. Awesome. Before we finish with some fun questions, I want to quickly ask you about how you decided to get involved with the WGA, because I think there might be a lot of potential writers listening out there who down the line might consider getting involved in just what really spoke to you and got you motivated. Um, so I was going to the Writers Guild Library for years before I was actually a member of the Writers Guild. Um, and I obviously wanted to join the guild, but the Writers Guild Foundation just had this incredible resource. And I used to go to their free events where you don't have to be a member. And I just loved that it is this organization that is totally dedicated to people understanding story and figuring out how to tell their own. And I loved that. I basically lived in that library. Um, and that is how I figured out how to tell the types of stories that I liked. And then when I got staffed and I was in the guild, it was just a no-brainer for me. I was like, oh, I'm obviously going to get involved. How I decided to run for the board, um, I was not planning to do that. And then David Goodman, the president of the Writers Guild of America West, was like, you should run for the board. And I was like, in <laughs> like a decade. But that wasn't completely random. You were going to meetings. You yeah, were, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he didn't just call just you up. Just stop me on the street. Yeah. You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so when the agency campaign was starting, I was, I was what um, we call a show captain. So I'd volunteered to kind of be the liaison between the guild and Charmed. And so... I was in communication with different staffers in the guild and trying to get some questions answered um, of some of my coworkers. And I went to a bunch of these captain meetings and I read all the information that they distributed and I spoke up at some of the meetings and one of the board members liked what I had to say and put me in touch with Goodman. And I started going to these general meetings, sitting on the stage with the rest of the board, just kind of speaking out. And um, so he's never been afraid to speak out. For anyone who what's so ironic, though, I have crippling stage fright. Oh, OK, so I'm a really outgoing person and I do have very strongly held opinions, but I have horrible stage fright. Um, and um, then I started putting on these um, mixers with a friend of mine that was kind of helping writers meet other writers and writers meet executives and producers and whatnot and so at that point I was getting so so involved and then Goodman was like you should run for the board and then some other board members said the same thing and then uh I did it and you won <laughs> and I won amazing <laughs> so yeah and then sorry one last question before sure. we finish with the fun ones I forgot to ask once you know a showrunner indicates they do like your sample and would like to meet with you. Do you mm -hmm. have any advice for staffing interviews? I hope people will really listen when I say this and not just write it off as generic advice. You really have to be yourself. Do not try and present yourself as the writer that you think they want for their staff because you don't know what they want for their staff. They may be looking for someone who's just kind of fun. They may be looking for someone who will sink their teeth into 
mythology, but do not try and pretend like you have a certain skill that you don't or like you love something that you don't really give a shit about. Um, Because a lot of if you get the staffing meeting, they like your work. They think you're talented at this point. It's just personality. Do they want to spend time with you eight plus hours a day? And even if they like you, if they have, you know, they're not going to have two of the same person. So if they have like a a class clown, if you will, they're not going to have four class clowns. Um, or they may need to figure out, will you fit with the chemistry of the other people who they've already hired? So it really is like dating. Oh, God, staffing season was exhausting because <laughs> it was like going on a bunch of first dates all the time. That's what it is. It's a date. And you're figuring out... Do you guys want to be in a relationship, which is like a really quick step from a first date, but you get what I'm saying. So you just present who you authentically are, answer the questions honestly, and be early. Holy shit. Do not be late for a staffing meeting. My God. (laughs) Feels like it goes without saying, but yes, please be early. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much. And I I just got to say something to add is there's also a component of money ball in there too, where they might really like you, but they've got to make the numbers work. Oh yeah. yeah. I've, there was a job, um, where a showrunner was like, we definitely want to hire her. They called my reps and they're like, we want to hire her. We just have to close the deal for, I think it was like a mid-level or an upper level writer. Um, and the last people that they hire are the staff writers and cause they, they cost the least amount of money. So they kind of hire the staff writers with like the leftover funds. And this person negotiated way too much money and they didn't have money for a staff writer anymore. And I didn't get that job and it was devastating, but it happens all the time. So sometimes you are what they want and they just can't afford you. Yeah, that's just the nature of the game. So now that we've learned so much about your process and being <laughs> in a room, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed, we'll just wrap up with some fun questions. Cool. Cool. So first off, what's the first thing you do when you wake up? Oh, God. I want to say, like, I check the news. I either check my e- I check my email if I'm working. If I'm on hiatus, I check Instagram first. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. All right. What's an app on your phone that you can't live without? Not including phone or texts, let's um, say. Ways. Okay. Yes, in LA, very, <laughs> very crucial. If you could only eat one food for a year, what would it be? Can it be a tie between two things? Yeah, sure. Either grilled cheese or chocolate chip cookies. Okay. And uh, two more. What's the last gift you gave someone? Oh, um, I'm the youngest of six kids, and my dad recently remodeled the house, and he really wanted photos of us in the house, so I gave my dad framed black and white portraits of uh, me and each of my siblings that's so sweet yeah what's your jam and jam as in sung because we're going to create a spotify playlist of oh, all cool. our guest recommendations <laughs> okay you were like strawberry i mean the answer would have been strawberry yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> um i'm i need to look it up because i just started listening to this new album yeah it's, um i'm obsessed with the chain smokers i love okay. them so much and their latest album is really good um okay yeah their album is called world war joy uh p.s i hope you're happy with the chain smokers and blink 182 is my oh, current wow. jam it's so a collab good. with blink 182 all right it's fantastic all right cool well thank you so much zoe this was super informative and even for me who's gotten a chance to know you and learn about your process a bit this was so cool to hear straight from you about how you do what you do so oh, thank, thank you so you. much if you'd like to follow zoe you may follow her on twitter at zmar0129 that's spelled z-m-a-r followed by the numbers 0129 and you can follow the pod 
at hdydpod. <laughs>